0: Friends, we're coming now to God's Word. We're looking at John chapter 8, and I'm going to read beginning from verse 12. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. And the story so far is that Jesus is in the temple, and He's surrounded by the Pharisees. Pharisees uh, were called by that name most probably because it was a kind of nickname for the way they behaved. Often these things develop like that in life, and they developed this name for them, Pharisees. And the Pharisee probably came from a word meaning pure ones. And so the Pharisees were a group of people, a sort of religious elite, that wanted to insist that their interpretation of the law was the correct one, And that everyone else needed to follow that interpretation. Jesus is now surrounded by the Pharisees. He's in the temple. And let's see how the conversation develops. John 8 verse 12. And again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going you you, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world I am NOT of this world I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins so they said to him who are you Jesus said to them just what I have been telling you from the beginning I have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him believed in him. My proposition is this. The biggest challenge facing the Christian church these days is not immorality. It is not bad people doing bad things. It's not all the sins, all the sinners. This is not the biggest challenge facing the Christian church today. No. The biggest challenge facing the Christian church today is Pharisaism. It ever thus. Jesus, of course, did not face his greatest challenges from the sinners. No, he was friend of sinners. Uh, but from the Pharisees. It was those who considered themselves righteous who opposed Jesus, attacked Jesus, questioned Jesus, and in the end, killed Jesus. And so, in our text this morning, we meet Jesus being questioned by the Pharisees. That itself is not unusual. We often find uh, in the Gospels that Jesus is being confronted by this religious elite. But what is fascinating about this text, though, is the way it begins and then how it carries on. You see, it begins with this famous statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's this famous statement about Jesus being the light of the world and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. There's darkness and there's light. And having started that way throughout the rest of the whole conversation Jesus never mentions darkness nor light again. The reason The darkness that Jesus is describing is the darkness of Pharisaic religion. They are the darkness. This actually is one of the great themes of John's John's gospel. You remember perhaps earlier when Nicodemus came to Jesus and had this conversation about being born again. And whoever enters the kingdom of God must be born from above. and, and, And all that conversation. And Nicodemus the Pharisee, came to Jesus at night. They are the darkness, the Pharisee. And the light, of course, is Jesus as the light of the world, but also the light that he gives to his followers. You may have the light of life. You who follow Jesus may have this. So, I believe this text is teaching us everyone can have the light of life when you follow Jesus. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that you could not make as big a difference in your life as you wanted that try as you might the darkness grows and pushes back on you at home, at work, in in your head space, in your mind, in your heart, the way you feel? Have you ever thought that? Listen to how everyone can have the light of life when you follow Jesus. Well, there's this darkness. What is that? We're going to look at the darkness and then the the light of life. First, the darkness. And actually, in this text, there are three elements of this Pharisaic darkness that are shown by the questions the Pharisees ask of Jesus. This really defines what a Pharisee is. There's legalism, there's deism, and there's moralism. Three elements of the darkness of the Pharisees. Legalism, deism, moralism. Legalism is shown in verse 13. So they're claiming that Jesus' witness is not valid because he is only one witness, and the law demands... Two witnesses. But how legalistic? I mean, Jesus replies to the specifics of the law in verses 14 to 18. By the way, do you notice how he says, your law? That's quite a thing for the Son of God to say about the law. Your law, because they're misinterpreting it. He replies to their specifics, uh, uh, because he and the Father bear witness. There are two witnesses. But the very way they frame the question is just astonishingly legalistic. He is the Son of God. What other witness does he need? Jesus, your word is not enough. I need some other proof. One uh, Christianity Today blog Slightly tongue in cheek, says there are seven ways to become a legalist. Here they are. Number one, make rules outside the Bible. Number two, push yourself to try to keep your rules, your law, remember. Number three, castigate yourself when you don't keep your rules. Legalists are always beating themselves up, aren't they? But then, number four, become proud when you do keep your rules. I've kept it. Number five, appoint yourself as judge over other people. Number six, get angry with people who break your rules or have different rules, heaven forbid. Number seven, beat the losers. Well, when we think about that list in any way whatsoever in relation to this passage, it seems to me the Pharisees are at stage five. Appoint yourself as judge over other people. And soon enough, they're going to get to stage six. They'll become angry, and then seven, they'll try to beat the losers or indeed kill Jesus. Now, my dear, my dear brothers and sisters... If we have any hope to proclaim the gospel, any hope to be a beacon of light, any desire to see Wheaton become increasing this shining beacon of God and grace and truth and all the rest that's in the gospel, if we have any desire for that, we will never achieve it if we become legalists. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, the, um, the preacher, once said this. I love this way of phrasing it. He has a little series of statements about legalism. This is what he said. The problem with legalists is that not enough people have confronted them and told them to get lost. Those are strong words, but I don't mess with legalism anymore. I'm 72 years old. What have I got to lose? Seriously, I used to cow-tow to legalists, but they're dangerous. They are grace killers. They'll drive off every new Christian you bring to church. They are enemies of the faith. Other than that, I don't have any opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Legalism. But then there's also deism and this Pharisaic darkness. The deism is shown by their question in verse uh, 19. To which Jesus replies in verses 20 and 21. So they could not grasp, as Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, deism was a doctrine, a teaching, a religion that was propagated and really began formally in the 18th century. So literally, the Pharisees were not deists, of course. But they had the same essential tendency: keep God a distance, and of course, the incarnation, God becoming man, coming right down into the muck and the dirt and the sin, right present supernaturally, that miracle of all miracles of Christ and his Incarnation, death, and resurrection, none of that could fit within their paradigm of deism. Keep God at a distance. We've got this religion thing sorted out, God. You know, you can stay outside the doors of the church. We don't need you messing around with stuff anymore. Perhaps the most famous deist in American history was a man called Jefferson. Jefferson. Jefferson went so far as to make up his own Bible. He, he cut out pages from different Bibles and he stuck them together in his own book and he put in only the pages that he agreed with that fitted within his deistic, keep God at a distance framework. And that Bible, so-called Bible, of Jefferson is kept at the Smithsonian and fascinatingly, this Whole chapter of John's gospel is removed from Jefferson's Bible. Why? Because Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know the Father also. Well, that's not going to work. We've got to keep God at a distance. We've got to order him according to our rules, according to what we think is moral and proper. Not any supernatural intervention. Now, again, like my dear friends, the Christian church today has many deistic tendencies. It's almost as if, I sometimes wonder, that we, we don't treat God as if He's real. As if he can actually do stuff. It's just sort of moral framework, a sort of philosophy. Okay, you know, what's your philosophy of ministry? Here's a philosophy of ministry: God can do something. How do you know whether? deism is taking hold of an individual or church, here's one one way I think you can tell. You stop praying. Legalism, deism, moralism... Moralism is shown by that question verse 22. And then the interchange in that theme that that really sort of goes backwards and forwards. But really it's the same theme here of moralism right the way until the end of verse 30. So they could not grasp, as Jesus puts it, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know who I am. They, They could not grasp. Jesus is talking about his death being lifted up on the cross. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, this Jesus... This son of God who dies for the sins of the world, they could not grasp the need, the importance, the essential nature of them requiring redemption. No, they're moralistic, they don't need saving. So as Jesus says, they would die in their sins because, as he put it, they will not believe that I am he, that he is God and that he has come to save them. They don't need any divine intervention and they don't need any redemption either. They don't need someone to die on a cross. They're moralistic. Al Mohler defines moralism like this. The belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. So many ways we do that, aren't there? Here are ten rules to have a happy life. And maybe, maybe I can find somewhere the Bible talks about it and that will do. It's just about being a Christian culturally. It's just about raising our children right. Al Muller actually went on to say this. He said, Our communities are filled with people who have been raised right but are headed to hell. We need saving, not moralism. Now, obviously, we have to teach moral behavior to our children. We have to teach moral behavior to one another, of course. But moral behavior is not the gospel. Well, they would not believe in Jesus. They could not grasp that him being raised up or dying on the cross for their sins is what they needed. They're relying on their moral performance. And it's all darkness. It's like a prison. Legalism, deism, moralism. But now we come to the light. And as Jesus answers all these questions that the Pharisees pose to him, who are you, where is your Father, all these different questions, you, you can see the light of the world shining on them and, and, and offering them the light of life if they follow him, which some did by the end, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him, this, this light of believing in Jesus and therefore following Jesus and therefore being, as it were, a light to others and having light shining through our being, our personality, our souls. And there are three areas in our text this this light is shown, truth, love, and the cross. So the Pharisees challenge Jesus that his testimony is not true, verse 13. And then Jesus explains how actually he is speaking truth. He explains the truth. And part of Jesus being the light of the world and part of those who follow him having the light of life is knowing and speaking the truth, not just your truth, but truth. In fact, Jesus would say later, we'll look at this next week, but it's right after this in verse 32, Jesus says, the truth will set you Free. truth. There's a Canadian uh, psychologist. Um, his name is Jordan Peterson. I don't think he's a Christian. Uh, but in, in his, he, he's become quite popular, advising a, a lot of uh, young people uh, how to live and all the rest, very, very dynamic um, and bright kind of communicator. And at one point he advises that we should speak the truth or at least not lie. Now, of course, Christians want to do a little more than that, but still. But fascinatingly, as he, as he discourses on the importance of telling the truth, he, he pulls from a couple of resources. One is the latest finding in genetics. So apparently, according to Jordan Peterson, who was at Harvard and is now at the University of Toronto, uh, the, actually... Our bodies are wired, recent research shows, that that genes in our bodies actually turn on, switch on, when we step into uh, new realities, when we actually take the risk of being truthful. In other words, he would make the case, actually, we, not only emotionally, but we physically become free because of the truth. How much more we Christians should know this kind of thing? Another example would be Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a great literary uh, hero from, the, uh, from, from Russia who spoke out bravely against the gulag, the horrible um, Stalinistic and later prisons that, that anyone who opposed Stalin and the Soviets was, was thrown into, and the later rulers as well. Uh, and his, his massive expose of this was called the Gulag Archipelago, and he received the Nobel Peace Prize for speaking the truth. And at the end of that speech, his Nobel acceptance speech, he said this: "One word of truth will outweigh the world." Solzhenitsyn can say that. If this Canadian psychologist can see that, surely we Christians, we we who follow Jesus, will realize that the truth is part of having the light of life. Not your truth, the truth. The, Our world is is lacking truth. We have social media that's created a fake world of fake friends. Jesus here offers truth to set you free. But also love. How patiently, how lovingly is Jesus with these Pharisees and their ridiculous questions? He's not a pushover. He tells them they're going to hell unless they repent. But he lovingly tells them of their danger. If you knew me, he says, this personal relational knowledge, if you you knew me, then you would know my Father also. This personal relational knowledge, a loving relationship with Jesus through whom we have a loving relationship with the Father and because of which we love those Around Now, my dear, my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters, when did it happen that we who believe in the Bible and are so firm on the truth have forgotten the great and high ethic of Christ and of Christianity, namely, love? Just love. If you knew me, you would know My Father also. This loving relationship which we're called into as Jesus, the light of the world, and then we walk in in light to those around. It, It makes me so sad. I love Jesus so much, and yet these... So-called Christian Pharisees really couldn't care less about Jesus. And because of that, they're often brutal to Jesus' people. They don't go to church or not regularly. They fall asleep while being warned of hell. It's all darkness. While the light of truth and love is shining. Truth, love, and the cross. I told you, Jesus says that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am here, you will indeed die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know who I am, the cross, the lifting up of Jesus through whom we can have redemption. That means that whatever we've done, wherever we've been, however bad we've been, whatever we've, whatever sin we've committed, that, that, that it's Because of Christ's death on the cross, we can be welcomed back with with open arms. The cross. The great tragedy of a cross-less Christianity is that it provides no hope to a dying world. Just moralism, just legalism. But a Christianity that has the cross at the heart, a crucicentric Christianity, well, that is then light and love and truth and hope and redemption for anyone. Billy Graham's last crusade was recorded on video a few years ago, and I, I, I looked back through it again recently. He said this at the beginning of that video, Our country is in great need of a spiritual awakening. There have been times I've wept going from city to city and seeing how far people have wandered from God. Of all the things I've seen and heard, there's only one message I've seen that can change people's lives and hearts. I want to tell people about the meaning of the cross. I want to tell you about that too. I don't want you to leave here just feeling bound by more legalism, by more moralism prayerless because you don't think God can do anything about it. No, I want you to have no more wandering in darkness. It makes no difference how bad your sins are, how many awful things you've done. Those sins are a great offense against the Holy God. But if you come by way of the cross, you're forgiven. You have new life. The truth, the love being set free. You'll know Jesus and you'll know the Father. And the way to have the light of life now and for all eternity is to put aside Pharisaic religions. Let me ask you this. Could it be that the reason why you still Sense this darkness creeping into your mind, your heart, your families, it's because you've bought into a Pharisaic version of Christianity. Could that be? Or could it be that the reason why you're scared to death to enter into this Bible, this church, this Jesus, is because you think that what we're about is this legalism, moralism, deism, this Pharisaic Christianity? Darkness. Light. Everyone can have the light of life when you follow Jesus let's pray together even as he spoke many put their faith in him Would you in the quiet put your faith in Jesus? Not in self improvement. How could you improve yourself enough to impress a holy God? Would you put that aside? instead put your faith in Jesus? Would you use this time to repent of a prayerless life and ask God to give you a, a fresh hunger to intercede for him, for the church, for the needs of this world? Would you ask, God, to open your eyes that you might see the light of life? For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.